0: snuff production this conversation has brief mentions of suicide if you or someone you know needs help please call lifeline on 13 11 14 jada pinkett smith jada pinkett smith she is one half of hollywood's most powerful couple my wife's name jada pinkett smith please welcome jada pinkett smith Jada Pinkett-Smith is an American actress, singer, songwriter and businesswoman, best known as the creator of the Red Table Talk series. Today's interview is a great honour because it's Jada's only Australian podcast interview. Jada's story is one of honesty. It is at times painful, but ultimately it is truly inspiring. We discuss her roller coaster ride from the depth of suicidal depression to finding solace in plant medicine, her marriage with actor Will Smith and the infamous Slap, finding peace in the divinity of spirituality and navigating the waves of grief when her friend Tupac was murdered. I mean, it's taken
1: me years, I mean, years, decades to make peace with his death the way in which he died. When you have a loved one that is murdered publicly in that way, someone who is as famous as Tupac is, it lingers in a different way, you know, because you're constantly reminded.
0: I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Through my years of studying and researching the connection between human behaviour, personal growth and transformation, I have discovered the keys to unlocking greatness within others. In this podcast, I share stories and experiences from my own teachings, along with conversations with inspiring guests to help you learn the simple tips, habits, practices and strategies to cultivate an extraordinary existence. Jada Pinkett-Smith is the author of the book Worthy. Worthy teaches us who Jada is and how to embrace our most lovable qualities. At the heart of this conversation lies the profound exploration of challenging decisions that force us to navigate the delicate balance between love and sorrow, life and death. But ultimately, this is a conversation about what it means to be truly alive. I hope you enjoy it. Firstly, Jada, it's so great to have you here. Your book, Worthy, is an absolutely almighty book. It is so great. Thank you. And I really wanted to know, writing a book like this, like I'm doing a lot of writing at the moment, and I find it hard to put so much of my personal life out there because you get worried about, oh, what will people think and this and that. And obviously Worthy is a lot of your life story and you're raw and honest and this book will change lives. It it will have already changed lives. How was that process for you?
1: Um, You know, that's part of the journey of self-worth, right? Is being able to embrace the entirety Of your journey, no matter what anybody else thinks about it. Right. And so I had gone through a a pretty extreme process in regards to really working on self-judgment right? Because I think a lot of times is we don't worry about how other people are going to feel about our story. We worry about how we are going to feel about people's feelings (laughs) towards our story, right? And so that's really about self-judgment. And so this was a beautiful process of just deepening And, you know, finding all the little gremlins that might be hiding in these little crevices that I wasn't aware of in regards to any self-judgment that might be left in regards to my journey. And I think for women specifically, it can be really difficult because our stories, our authentic journeys are still quite taboo because of the expectation of woman, all the different levels of expectation of woman, depending upon, you know, where where she's sitting. And so I think that's another thing that we have to contend with and is sometimes really difficult.
0: I want to know how the journey for you has been to find your worthiness, because that is what the whole book is kind of based on. And it's something that isn't easy for many of us. How have you found it along your journey?
1: Well, it's quite a process,
0: right? And so the journey of self-worth
1: is, it's really layered. Mm. So for me personally, I just made a conscious decision that at 40 years old, I was like, oh, when I had to contend with a level of self-hatred, when I was doing ayahuasca and I was like, wow, I really hadn't realized how much I didn't like myself. Mm. And so that's when I realized, oh, wow, like that is the only thing to be doing, (laughs) you know, is to be working towards this level of Solid, a solid constitution within ourselves because a lot of times we're looking for a relationship or we're looking for um, a career or all of these external things in order to make us have this level of self-worth, right? Versus mm-hmm. if you strip all that down, just, take, just strip it down. What do you have? Mm-hmm. Take all that away, right? It's like, can you sit in your mind with just yourself, Mm -hmm. and love what's there that's the place we want to get to when we can understand that we can pull ourselves out of our own despair we can we can be our own salve. we can be our own warm bath Mm -hmm. right and that's when we realize that we're enough because I was like what does it mean to be you know I'm enough and self-love like I would hear all of that (laughs) yes (laughs) yeah yeah the hell does that mean you know and so being on my on my journey and having to really go through some really tough emotional moments and some, and it's some really uncomfortable emotional places with that I would run from. I would either take a drink or look for someone to comfort me or, you know, and once I got to a place where I was willing to learn how to comfort myself in a healthy manner, and just be with the fear, be with my anger, be with my resentment, be with my, you know, sadness, and then come out on the other side. Okay. I was like, oh, snap. All right, I'm okay. <laughs> I didn't die. The boogeyman didn't come to me and gobble me up. You know what I mean? And so the more I kept doing that, the more practice. I got with that, I started to build my self-worth. I started to see what made me worthy and valuable and this idea of being enough.
0: And I was like, oh,
1: that's what it means. That's what
0: it is. It's so interesting because, you know, I think we have this perception that people who are famous and who are in Hollywood and they can have anything they want and they go to these great red carpets and they're just on top of the world with all of their wealth and whatever else it is. And I wonder, like you obviously, we'll talk about your humble beginnings to where you are now, but how do you then, with all that around you, what is the moment where you think to yourself, I don't like myself? I think for me is when I became very suicidal
1: and had to really contend with that. I had an opportunity to heal that. And I, throughout my life, even though I had all of these things, this, all of this external stuff, I I just wasn't happy. Yeah. Right. And I kept, I talk about in the book, how I kept trying to check the boxes at first. It was like, oh, you know, I'm going to, I'm young and I'm hot. I'm going to go to Hollywood and make it. And once I did that and it was like, oh snap, I'm not happy. And then I Prince Charming came into my life and we built this life together. And I was like, oh, I'm gonna be a wife and I'm gonna have kids and you know, we're gonna build this thing. And I, I'm not happy. I was like, what what else are you supposed like what else am I supposed to be doing? am I doing this wrong? So you think that you're living life wrong. There's not so much of living life wrong. I think it's just that sometimes we have false ideas. Of what we believe is supposed to make us happy. And if we don't have ourselves, if we don't have ourselves, you there's there's no one and nothing can give you that oasis, that that inner kingdom within. You know, that's what the heroine's journey is. That what that's what the hero's journey is that Joseph Campbell talks about so beautifully, and you know. Clarissa Pinkola Estes talks about as far as the heroine's journey, even though she doesn't claim that in that way. But that, that's what she's describing in her book, Women Who Run With the Wolves, mm. all the different psychological paradigms that we have to deal with within ourselves, you know, that the outside world can't. We, we're not exempt from that no matter what we accumulate <laughs> in the
0: outside world. It's true. I wonder for you, what makes you happy now? Oh man, just,
1: I, I think that part of the the beauty of a midlife crisis, and I won't even call it like, I know it feels like a crisis, but it's like, it's it's really a turning point because it's, basically for me, it was a period of time in my life where all of the beliefs that had built my life to that point had to change, Mm. right? So what makes me happy now is that I feel like I have more understanding of what life's about. So now I don't take life personally, Yeah. you know? Everybody's having a difficult time. Mm. Everybody. Some degree. That's part of the human experience. Nobody is exempt from that. And I used to think that something was wrong with me. That something was inherently wrong with me. Everybody else seemed to be having a great time, but me. And I was like, well, shoot you've got the perfect life to have a great time. If you can't have a great time here, Jada, I don't know what to tell you. (laughs) (laughs) You And so what makes me happy now is just having deeper understanding of what life is, which has given me a new joy Mm. and has brought me into a new gateway of what love looks like, of what connection looks like, And I've been able to kind of dismantle some of the emotional, immature beliefs that I had around life, love, relating, and myself, you know? And I think the biggest thing that has brought me the most happiness is self-acceptance. Yeah. It's like me having to understand, Jada, you must embrace your humanness. Mm.
0: That's so true. You know, it's interesting you've done so much work on yourself and they say before the age of seven is where our subconscious mind is forming and everything that happens around us affects us and you obviously had a bit of a tumultuous childhood. You had a beautiful childhood in so many aspects but both of your parents were addicts and there was a point where your father said to you just straight out, like, I can't be your dad anymore. I am an addict. How was that for you? And how did that affect you moving into later life?
1: At the time, because I was so young, the real deal was is that he had been hardly around anyway. I'm like, yeah, of course. Okay, I get that, (laughs) right? I was just just happy that he said it, you know, that he wasn't the kind of guy that was trying to act like, he was a good dad or trying to be a dad at at all, right? Like, thank you for that. So now no expectations whatsoever. But as I got older, I started to realize my distrust for men Hmm. and how my relationship with men and understanding maleness was just out, I really didn't, have it was always just me and my mother. So besides my grandfathers, I really didn't have a lot of contact. You know, I didn't have like a brother that I grew up with in the house or, you know, I had a lot of male friends or what have you, but that's really different than having that kind of fatherly love that helps you kind of navigate mm. male understanding at first, if that makes any sense. Yes. Like I, I'm just, I'm still like learning about, Men. (laughs) So am I. So am I. (laughs) You know, I feel like I was a little behind on the eight ball, but I mean, you know. But I had a real distrust Mm. for men and I created a lot of false beliefs and a lot of um, exaggerated expectations That's really set in a really romanticized, really highly romanticized idea of how men should show up for me because I've been looking for a father. And, you know, your husband, your boyfriend can't be your dad. No. And I didn't really understand that I was, you know, this kind of, kind of like this exaggerated fantasy version of what a man needed to be in my life.
0: And then your mother had another man that came into her life, Warren, who obviously was your stepdad. And you and him were like, he really took you under his wing and and you spent a lot of time with him. But then there was a point where that relationship between him and your mother ended. And he formed another relationship that didn't allow you to then have him as that sort of, I suppose, fatherly figure. Yeah. How was
1: that? Oh, at the time it was devastating. Mm. It was really devastating. And as I've gotten older, you know, and I had my own family and you get to see how complicated life can be, I understood why he made some of the choices that he made. Mm. But at that time... It was devastating, which just compounded probably even more my distrust for men and compounded my lack of self worth. Mm. Someone who had chosen to be my father and then unchose to be my dad, I was like, oh, something's wrong with me, clearly. Something's wrong with me.
0: Now that that makes three parents yes. that, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Especially at such a young age as well. You're just reacting to the environment and you don't know anything else.
1: That's it. You know, you're, you, that young mind doesn't understand that everything that's happening around really doesn't have anything to do with her, yeah. you know? This is adult stuff, like people have their stuff. It doesn't have anything to do. She just happens to be there. But young Jada did not not recognize that. Mm. And so young Jada just kind of took that on as like, oh, I'm the problem.
0: Do you ever think about young Jada now? Because this book is so beautiful and you just want to give her a big hug. Yeah. Like had you had known where you were going to end up. And I know it, it has not at all been an easy journey, but thinking about her then, how do you reflect on that? Oh,
1: I often give young Jada just a lot of, a lot of hugs. And, you know, I used to, oh, I used to hate when people talked about inner child work cuz yes, I, okay. I, I it's just, so annoying like, it's just annoying I'm like don't talk to me about my inner child okay <laughs> but it's real talk you know yeah. what i'm saying it's like you have to you have to get in contact with that young child that had so many misunderstandings and then developed mm. so many mechanisms in order to survive the life in which she perceived it as young Jada. Yeah. And so just being able to gradually and continuously like absorb that emotional intelligence to recognize when young Jada is taking the wheel, right? And just going, no, 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 no. We're going to let adult Jada take that and just being able to talk to her kindly and 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 love on her and just just slowly transform all of those mechanisms that were developed and have been used to get me to where i am today yeah. you know and so really i had to learn how to not condemn and have a lot of compassion and really see the beauty of her as well mm. you know her playfulness her just yummy, just she's very cuddly and really just allowing her to to be, you know, and finding those places where she can be a little girl too, because she just wasn't allowed that.
0: There's a beautiful passage in the book that you write about chaos. You say, many of us who were raised in environments of chaos as children become addicted to that chaos. These cycles of chaos will seem so normal that we won't recognise how we attract it and make consistent choices that keep us in the disorder. For many of us, the trappings of chaos seem so familiar, so right, that we can't even recognise the warnings when they make a blaring appearance.
1: <sighs> <It's> real talk.
0: <laughs> I mean, how do you recognise the chaos now? Do you find that your life is any less chaotic?
1: You know what's funny? (laughs) As chaotic as it seems on the outside, it's far less chaotic on the inside because the chaos really is, because first of all, the world is chaos, Yeah. right? So it's really being able to find that stillness within ourselves. Like if there's chaos going within and chaos going with you know, in, mm. on, in the outside world, right? So we ourselves have to be always in the eye of the storm,
2: mm. right?
1: I had to really go through an extreme process of disconnecting from certain parts of myself. Mm. You know, when we talk about abstinence from sex, abstinence from alcohol, abstinence from certain foods and all of these things, right? Right. What I've learned is that the real hardcore abstinence is when we start to see these the psychological programmings that attract, draw in and put out certain behaviors that create chaos in the chaos. And so I had to really learn how to abstain from the chaos within myself in order to transform and make different decisions around how I wanted my inner life to be. yeah, That's constant. That's on Mm. a daily. That's every minute of the day.
0: You talk a lot in your book about religion and spirituality as well. And The fact that you have studied a lot of different religions, like you talk about the Sufi poets and Buddhism and Judaism, and you did a lot of work with the Quran, like all these different things, even Scientology. Yeah. I wonder like what made you want to go into studying all these different religions?
1: Well, my grandmother, while everybody was going to church on Sunday, (laughs) my grandmother who was at the time an atheist. Before she died, she became an agnostic, which means she didn't know if God existed or not versus like God doesn't exist. But she told me as a young person, she was like, I don't believe in God, but I want you to learn about all the different faces of God so you can decide if there's a God you want Mm. for you. So I went to this place called the Ethical Society every Sunday where... I would learn about different religions. And I became obsessed. I mean, even as a child, because as a child, the way it's taught to us is, you know, through the it was very like it was fascinating because of all of the different cultures and the ways in which people praise their higher power. And, you know, so it's like going off into all of these different lands. And it's like really kind of, you know, just beautiful. But it just stuck with me for the entirety of my life. I've just loved. Religion and finding spirit within them. And so that's something I've just, I just have such a thirst and a hunger for divine understanding.
0: What spiritual practices do you do on a daily basis?
1: So every morning I wake up probably about 4 a.m. So, you know, between 4 a.m., 5 a.m., I do meditation and contemplative prayer. Sometimes I chant then I will read some kind of scripture of some kind. So whether it's from the Gita, the Torah, the Quran, the Bible, right? And then I will do some kind of movement. Right now I'm really into Qigong. So either that or yoga. And that's my morning. And sometimes I can have a practice as abundant as three hours, or sometimes I've got 20 minutes. Just depends, you know, but I do not start my day without getting into
0: communion with the higher power. Yeah, I do the same thing. Not the same thing as you, but I will sit in meditation, doesn't matter what time it is, every morning. And I strengthen that relationship with the divine before I start the day. The times you don't do it, which is very rare for me, how weird do you feel? It's like you just do not feel right. Exactly. I'm always just off. It's just this beautiful like moment where it's just you and whoever else, but it's just strengthening, you know, that umbilical cord, knowing that it's there, having that connection. It's such a beautiful thing. Obviously, you talk a lot about your life growing up and something that has garnered a lot of attention is this relationship that I didn't even know about. I mean, I'm probably living in archaic times, that you were best mates with Tupac from when you were in year 10, which is the cutest thing in the world. And you call him like a little pea head, like you've known, you knew him from when he was so young, Yeah, which is so beautiful. You have like a proper relationship with him. It wasn't just a relationship born out of fame. Right. He obviously passed away and that was a shocking time for you as it would be for anyone who lost one of their best friends. And you say in your book, this is when you found out that he had been murdered. My knees buckled, I nearly fell to the floor. My whole system crashed and I lost my breath for a moment. I never once saw myself on this planet without him here, somewhere on it. I felt a huge piece of love for me leave the world. A part of myself gone, in its place, was rageful sadness. Pack had been a, a mirror, a reflection of the best of myself, a tether. My heart felt ravaged like a million stabbings every second. How do you move through something like that and something in such a public forum?
1: Yeah, that was September 13th. He died. He, um, a loss like that, like people are always looking for the moment that you get over it. I hear that so often when people are in the pain of mourning, like, when will I be over this? And I'm like, ah, you don't really get over it per se. You just learn how to be with it. Right. And I think as the years have gone on, I've learned how to have acceptance. I've learned that there's just so much mystery in this universe, you know, and just trusting that God knows best and that all is well. And that takes time. I mean, it's taken me years, I mean, years, decades to make peace with his death, the, the, the way in which he died. Mm. You know, I think when you have a loved one that is murdered publicly, um, loss is loss, you know. But when you have someone that is murdered publicly in that way, someone who is as famous as Tupac is, it lingers in a different way, you know, because you're constantly reminded. And so, um, yeah, it just takes a lot of time. It's a very layered process depending on the circumstances. Mm. But I'm just
0: grateful that I have made peace with it. How? I mean, you have had quite a lot of loss in your life. How does one move, like especially with the the pack stuff, from anger to acceptance with that? That's when I really deepened my spiritual practice
1: and I had to surrender my arrogance in me believing that I knew better than the great Supreme, Hmm. right? The way knows the way. And I might not like it. It might not suit me, my fancy. (laughs) But guess what? that's not what this is about. Yeah. And so once I started to really deepen my surrender and understand that the great Supreme knows way better that universal intelligence and really trusting and also believing that Pac is where he's meant to be. Mm. He served his purpose. His fate was what it was, Mm. what it, what it is, you know, and that, the Great Supreme makes no mistakes.
0: Mm, it's so true.
1: You know, and really having to release me thinking I know better.
0: You mentioned earlier and you talk in the book, obviously, about having a couple of moments where you had suicidal thoughts and Plant medicine became such a beautiful part of your life, and a wonderful savior, really. And I wonder if you can talk to us a bit about those experiences and what it was like. There is a beautiful part where you actually say it was like being in the bosom of God or yeah, being held in the bosom of God. It was like that was the fourth night.
1: so as i as I said before, leading up to my 40th birthday, I had really, I was in a really bad way. And I was, you know, I was at my wits end and I was looking for cliffs to drive over because I was like, well, I could not have my kids think that I committed suicide. So I I was looking for ways to make an accident, you know, just driving off of a cliff. Then my son, Jaden, his friends were in the living room talking about this plant medicine that their father had gone and done in in the Amazon. And he was like, mom, you got to come hear this experience. And so I'm listening to them. And then I was like, is your dad in town? Because I would like to talk to him. (laughs) <laughs> and so their father came over and I, I'd, I'd known him for a while. And as soon as he walked in the door, I was like, something is different. Like he was just glowing. He was just, just different. And he started talking to me about his experience. And I was like, hey, I need this in my life. And within a month, there was um, an opportunity for me to uh, have a session in Ojai. And the first two nights were pretty good. But the third night was when I really came upon what most at the time I thought I was possessed. Um, <laughs> and, and you could actually kind of call it a possession. You know, when you see the, um, I got to see the density of darkness within my suicidal. Wow. Thoughts, right? And that what the medicine was doing was bringing it to me for me to see, for it to pass through, right? To, for it to release, for it to let go, for it to be transformed. But I was so scared that I just kept, you know, resisting. And that intensified it. <sighs> and I was supposed to be done the third night. But I was like, I can't go home like this because I literally thought I was possessed. And then the fourth night, I remember the medicine woman telling me, don't say anything and be still. Now, this is what I was talking about before earlier when we learn how to be with ourselves Mm. in a certain way. Now, this is an extreme version because I had to learn how to be with this really dense shadow and just let it pass by. Like I'm watching a movie, just let it pass by, just let it pass by. And then all of a sudden this beautiful light came in.
2: Mm.
1: And that's when I started to feel like love. I got to feel the divine presence. I'd always known that there was divine existence, but I didn't have a relationship with it. I didn't, I'd never, I had never felt it. And once the darkness passed, that light came in and I felt divine presence. And I was like, you gotta be kidding me. This is the feeling I've been searching for all my life. Wow. This is it. And that's when I just became like, that's when my like, I knew the divine existed. I knew that I wanted to like deepen my relationship with the divine. I knew that love was real in such a divine way. And my life changed from that moment on. It's been quite an intense journey and just getting rid of all of the layers of false belief and all of the layers of like, that I had built up to become the thing I thought I needed to be to survive this place. So I had to like just shred it all down to get to love and it's a process it doesn't happen overnight and i'm still going uh, i'm still in it you know i'm a work in progress
0: how when you're in that moment of true light and love i mean how did that feel <sighs> the only
1: way i can explain it is like floating in the warmest bath in a pink cloud full of warm honey <laughs> I mean, you are just absorbed. It feels like the 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 most softest, enveloping love, and you can just let go in it, and it it, it just has you. Because I think that's what we all look for, like in our relationships, our romantic relationships. We want to just be. We want to just let go, and we want to be so absorbed in that love. Mm. But. That can't happen between two human beings. Yeah. Right? It has to go up and then down. I'm learning how to love through divine presence versus personality. Yeah. Instead of going here, from me to you, it's like, no, I'm going to go up through divine, back down to you. Because the personality is always going to be full of desires that are, you know, unrealistic and what have you. Right. It's like when I sat in that like divine presence and I was like, and, and, and feel, I was like, just as I am just being me, I was worth that love. It was so incredible i would just burst into tears cuz even now as i'm sitting here with you i'm just i'm i can i'm just full of so much joy because it never leaves you you can't unring that bell mm. and it's like you just being makes you worthy of that divine love you don't have to be perfect you don't have to say the right things do the right things it's there to love you as you
0: are. That's so beautiful. I wonder, you know, you're obviously married to Will Smith and the tabloids have written so many things and we need to (laughs) go into the ins and outs of all that. But I wonder after that, how was your relationship with Will? Like how did you see him after an experience like that?
1: Totally different. You know, I'll, and I'll tell you, I, I think I talk about it in the book. I think I do. Yes, we, I do. The first time we did the, an ayahuasca session together was really, I mean, I got to see this beautiful, mischievous little boy, right? And I was like, oh my goodness. He was just so adorable. And I was like, oh. That's what's in there. (laughs) You know what I mean? Because we build these personalities, you know what I'm saying? That Mm. we, to walk in the world with because of what we think we need to be, to be loved, to be embraced, to be accepted, to be, you know, and we forget about those innocent ones within Mm. that are actually more true than the
0: personalities
1: we build. But it was such a beautiful experience.
0: Wow. I wonder, you know, having your practices and having the experience with plant medicine and stuff, how has it made you then look at the media and say, for example, you write about this in your book, Worthy, the slap that everyone obviously saw and that was horrendous, I'm sure for every single person involved. How do you reflect on that knowing what you do about the divine and God and why did that happen? Did it happen for a reason? Are we here always for things to happen for a reason? How do you think about that time with your spiritual practices and knowledge of that higher power? It was,
1: you know, when me having walked through so many valleys within myself, it was like, oh, here we are in the humanness of it all and how we as human beings have such disdain for humanness Mm. and that that's part of the human condition. And in that moment, what I realized is that all you can do is love.
2: Mm.
1: You got to love it all and you have to accept it all. You can't have aversion to people being upset and now people wanting to attack you. You know, it's like, Nah, that's part of it. That's the human condition. And if I am saying we have to embrace all that's human, I have to be willing to have all of that. You have to sit with it all in love. Ram Das has the most perfect line. I love Ram Das. Learning how to be, you know, in hell with an open heart. Mm. That's what walking this life is about or else we're just doing more of the
0: same. How do you sit in the pain, Jada? There must be so much pain there. I mean, I'm thinking my own life sitting in the pain is so hard, and I wonder for you who has a public life, how is sitting in the pain?
1: You let your heart break over and over again. Yeah. It's that Rumi quote. Yeah. <laughs> you let your heart break. Just let it break. And that's where we find deeper love, deeper compassion we think that our strength comes from retaliation from being you know armored up and strong like that that was me i i believed in that you know instead of surrendering to the heartache and realizing that in the surrendering of the heartache surrendering in the allowing yourself to Be broken down is it's in your vulnerability that your strength really lies. And it's where it is there where you allow more of divine presence to come in. And what you realize is that no one can hurt you. You know, we think that in the heartbreak, we think that in the breakdown of it all, that, oh my God, people are gonna really be able to hurt me then. And it's like, nope, they actually can't. When your heart becomes elastic. And allowing it to break over and over and over again, it becomes so expansive. Mm. You know, it, it becomes that Quan Yin energy, where you can just hold it, and it's okay. No one can take anything from you. No one can hurt you. Love is the greatest shield. Mm. But man, you' there's a hell walk to get
0: there. Yeah. There's that quote, if you find yourself walking through hell, keep going.
1: Hell yeah, that's it. (laughs) 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 If you find yourself walking through hell, keep going. You know, I I always would say there's blessings in pain. Mm -hmm. And it is called sacred pain, though. There's some of us that like to suffer. Now, this is a really deep subject because me being a codependent, I had to learn the difference between sacred pain and the egoic pain mm. of martyrdom. Oh, look at how I suffer for you. You know, all of that. Right. Which is just the other side of it is quite a shadow side of of the ego that you don't even recognize as this victim, you know, that is sitting in much victim as the boisterous ego. Um, but that sacred pain of being, allowing yourself to allowing your heart to break in order for more divine presence and more elasticity and vastness within it, that is for sacred pain, not sitting in abusive relationships or, you know, allowing yourself to be treated us, you know, treated badly for someone else's benefit. That's not what I'm talking about. And it being able to have the discernment of recognizing the difference between the two.
0: And it took me a really long time to have that discernment. You met, this is like a highlight of your book for me. You met the spiritual teacher Thich Nhat Hanh. <laughs> How was how was that moment? Stuff the celebrities. How was Tik It was amazing. You know, at the time,
1: his health wasn't. Yeah. Ah, but being in his presence. You no, know, that's when you really realize the power of um silence. You know, it really being in his presence was just so like. And it was so out of nowhere. It, it was on a whim. I mean, yeah. that, that in itself was a miracle, okay? That I was in Vietnam and my brother-in-law was like, Tick not Han is there. And I'm like, hmm, okay. And I just happened to, you know, find a way to, to get up with, with Tick. <laughs> so, but yeah, it was, it was an amazing experience.
0: Life-changing in the most subtle but potent way. Because it was in silence that you guys were together. How was it? He was in deep, like he was in meditation mm. and just
1: trying to, you know, like I said, his his physical body was deteriorating. Yeah. And to see this peace and this strength and this power in this body that was shedding and what he was Emanating, it was like when I read stories of like people sitting at the feet of mm-hmm. Ananda Mayi or sitting at you know what I'm saying, it's yeah. like, oh, this is what that is. Or when people talk about just touching the hem of Christ, mm-hmm. right? You're like, oh, okay, like when you've embodied divine energy in a certain manner that it is there you you are literally a vessel he was literally a vessel mm. it was just like
0: oh man it was just amazing do you have like a favorite prayer that you say every day or mantra or something like that
1: there is a mantra that i do use but it's it's quite secret i never reveal it just because it was, it was given to me as a as something deeply sacred but yeah That one specifically I do use every day and even in moments when throughout the middle of the day, you know, I I pray throughout the day as well just to make sure that I'm staying on path and that divine knows that I am, it is always with me. But, yeah,
0: really just that particular mantra that I say every day. What's been your most mystical experience?
1: Oh, I would say definitely in plant medicine. And there's been new, I mean, I've been doing plant medicine now for 12 years. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I could write a book just on plant medicine journeys (laughs) and all the (laughs) mystical journey, all, all the mystical experiences I've had within them that have just been crazy.
0: How has it changed your life, the plant medicine?
1: You know, this is the way I tell people, plant medicine does what I consider five years of therapy in like three nights. (laughs) (laughs) It helps, it helped me work through trauma. It helped me heal. It helped me see my ego and how the, the, the shadow aspects of my ego that I needed to bring more light to. It helped me see my fears and then showed me there was nothing to be afraid of. It It taught me to be with my self in ways that nothing else, mm. I don't think anything else could, meaning it, it taught me how to be with my intense emotions because I think that's what most of us are very afraid of. We, we, are, we don't want to feel pain even though this is a painful place to be. You know, and I think the first thing we all, I knew, I won't say we all, I'll say I needed to learn how to do was, as Tik Knot would say, suffer with grace. Mm. And in that understanding that that's part of being here, mm. you know, this place is a difficult place to be.
0: It is, isn't it? <laughs> it's difficult now, especially, I mean, and everyone has their own personal journey too, but it's hard. Yeah. What is something that you wish for yourself? I just want to keep
1: just deepening my understanding about love and in learning how to love myself deeply, learning how to love others as they are mm. and just continue to accept what is. Yeah. With, and have no aversion to any of it and just continue to just deepen my harmony within myself and so that I can have more harmony with this place we call the world.
0: I want to read one of the last bits in your book. You say, love and guidance are always there for us to see us through the shadows of our hearts and valleys of our souls with the remembrance of our beauty and light to help the pieces of us that are lost to find their way home. Do you find your way home, Jada? I'm walking home,
1: you know. I'm walking home. And that's what we're all here to do is just help each other
0: walk each other home. Mm. That's it. I remember Oprah was in an interview once and someone asked her like, what was the most profound thing anyone's ever said to you? And this really stuck with me. She said, you know, there was a boy, there was a mother I was interviewing of a boy who was 13 and he was dying of AIDS. And before he closed his eyes, he said to his mother, it was all so easy. And then he passed. I think to myself, like, it's so (laughs) true. Like, we make it so complicated and it can be so hard, but really, like, it is so easy, but it's us that brings in all that other stuff.
1: Yeah. And that's
0: what it's all about, just shedding all of that false
1: stuff that makes us think that it's not easy.
0: Yeah. You know,
1: that's what it's about.
0: What is a life of greatness to you? A
1: life of greatness to me is to just continue my walk home, you know, right? And being in service to a power higher than myself. And that's what a life of greatness is for me, you know, and, and continuing to learn what that is. You know, I'm, I'm still a novice at my relationship with the Great Supreme, but I want to be in service to love and I want to be in service to the great supreme and whatever my role is meant to be here through divine source
0: jada pinkett smith your book worthy is unbelievable you are the brightest light and I can't begin to thank you enough for this absolutely beautiful conversation it's an absolute honor thank you so much it was so
1: nice sarah thank you so much this was really a pleasure thank you
0: If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Your Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my manifestation course and meditations, head to the shop tab at saragrimberg.com or this week's episode show notes to find a link. If you love what you heard, we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others.
2: Listener.